For those of you that know, for the years that you were here at Tikvot, is that uh, my family had cut me off because of my relationship uh, with the Lord, with Yeshua. And uh, two and a half years ago, miraculously, my uh, father agreed to reconcile with me. It's a long story. I'm not going to get into it. It was a huge affair. and It was a complete reconciliation. It was really amazing. Still getting a lot of echo, very deep voice. My voice doesn't sound that deep most of the time, even though I do have a cold, but anyway. Um, so, uh, and then my mother reconciled with me about three days before she died. Uh, it was, that's all miracle story as well. Anyway, uh, we came back here this time specifically for my dad's uh, 91st birthday, which was a week and a half ago. And, um, and so we saw him again last week and he was declining quickly, very quickly. Um, and he hadn't been coherent at all for several, uh, you know, for several days. And so we weren't sure what we were going to find. But my sister said, asked if Stacy could play some music for him and maybe I could come up and, pr- and just pray for him. And, you know, none of my family know, knows the Lord. Uh, we got up there, not sure what to expect. And my dad was shockingly completely lucid. He had come out of it. And uh, we'd been praying. We'd asked a lot of people to pray. We, we pray, you know, we, and so forth. Stacy ended up playing a couple of songs for him, which he really loved, because he's fully, fully coherent when he wasn't in this kind of semi-coma state or whatever it was. And so then I wasn't sure what to do, but we're getting ready to leave. And so I, I asked my dad if we could pray for him. And he said, absolutely. And now you have to understand my dad's been an atheist his entire life. And he used, we used to fight and fight about religious issues before they cut us off. So um, just to even want prayers, like shocking. And so we prayed <clears throat> for him. We were holding hands. And then he said, as we were closing, he says, I want to pray. And, you know, I didn't even know what to say. And so he prayed and he, he just talked to God like we would talk to the Lord. I didn't even know he, I didn't even know he knew how to pray, you know. And he, he asked for forgiveness and he asked for redemption. <laughs> and today, today he's dying and we're going up immediately afterwards the service to be with him. And today he's, he's probably not going to make it through the day. So, and we'll have to leave shortly after the service uh, to get up there to Washington, D.C. Anyway, I just wanted to share this story because I know many of you were aware and were praying over many years for my family, and thank you, thank you. Um, before I start in the small sanctuary, we, we brought some stuff from Israel. We have some soaps and oils that were, anointing oil that were made by some other believers in the land. You're welcome to them. They're really cool. Uh, I have my Jewish history course. We've got Stacy CDs. My annual newsletter's out there. If you don't get our email updates, you're welcome to sign up, so it's all in there. We'll probably stay about a half an hour after the service, then we're going to have to really bolt. So uh, anyway, with that, let's go. So I want to talk today about the highway of God. And um, I want to begin in Isaiah chapter 19, our first slide up here. Um, there's the scripture, the scripture, particularly Isaiah, talks a lot about the highway of God. And it begins here in Isaiah 19, which says, in that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. Assyria would essentially be Iraq today. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together. 
In that day, Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. And so the question is, is what is this highway that the Lord speaks about, that Isaiah speaks about. And we see it on our next slide here, which is basically the Fertile Crescent. This right here is known as the highway of God in the scriptures. In fact, most of the geographic area in which the Bible speaks is contained in this area of the Fertile Crescent. But it's also unique in another sense, this particular area, because when you read the outline in the book of Genesis about the Garden of Eden, it could well be this particular area. Because we know that the Garden of Eden mentions two rivers that we're all familiar with, which is the Tigris and Euphrates River, which runs through uh, the central part of Mesopotamia, Iraq today. But then it also mentions another river in, in Genesis about the river of Gihon. And it says in there that Gihon runs through the land of Cush. Well, the land of Cush in the Bible, wherever the land of Cush is mentioned, it always refers to Ethiopia. And so it's quite, it's quite likely that the Gihon River is actually the Nile River and that they're referring to this area as being the, the Garden of Eden itself. Now, why is that important? Because God had a call on Adam and Eve to go forth from the garden and to cultivate the whole earth, which is, which is what they ended up doing but, of course, under the stain of the fall. But afterward, as we know from the scriptures, there was the flood, which created a renewed earth and a renewed humanity under Noah and his family. And following the flood came the establishment of all the nations of the earth. And out of one of those nations came a well-known man that we're all familiar with, which is Abraham. And we want to look at where Abraham came from and where he went. So let's look at our next uh, map up here. And Abraham's journey began in Ur, which is in southern, south, southeastern Iraq today. It would be near the city of Basra, which is the big oil refinery area, because we probably, you know, probably realize, but Abraham was an oil merchant in those days. That was kind of a joke. Um, but anyway, the scripture says that he migrated north and, he, and ended up in Haran, which is along the Fertile Crescent right up here, which is where he left his family in, in northern Syria, went down to the land of Canaan right in here, which is the strategic center of the Fertile Crescent. And then the scripture says, if you remember, is that during a famine, he went further south into Egypt itself. And so basically what Abraham did was he walked the highway of God. Why is that important? Because the scripture says that Abraham was a prophet. And so as a prophet, he was kind of walking out what God's purposes and plans were for all of humanity in this idea of creating a restored garden of Eden on the earth. Now, how do we know all of this? Because God originally called, as we've said, Adam and Eve to spread the garden throughout the entire earth, which means to bring about God's presence on the earth where there would be harmony between God and man, man and man, and man and nature. And we see this depicted later on in the book of Isaiah, in chapter Isaiah 11, which talks about the end of days. And it says there that the wolf will lie down with the lamb. There will be no more war and that the, uh, heart, that the God's presence will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. The idea of no war in this section of the world. It's hard to believe, of course, in our day that we live. But we want to look again at Abraham and specifically at his call. And so let's look at the next slide here. And it says here in Genesis chapter 12 that I will make you into a great nation. 
I will bless you, I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. In other words, that God will use the descendants of Abraham, later known as the Jews, or the nation of Israel, to bring blessing to all the nations, to bring about a restored Garden of Eden, or a restored earth over all the nations. Then we see, of course, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, and his family. Where do they go in the scriptures? They go down to Egypt, where they stay for a few hundred years, the edge, the southern edge of the, far, of, of the Fertile Crescent. And then later, of course, we know that Moses brings the people of God out into the, uh, into the promised land. He establishes his kingdom and his order and brings the God's presence into the midst of his people. But then as we see later, hundreds of years later, because of Israel's sin, they're exiled to where? They go to Babylon, which is the other side of the Fertile Crescent, because it's this region which is the center of God's purposes for all of humanity. At the end of the exile, God makes this incredible promise to the Jewish people as they start to return back from Babylon, and this comes from Isaiah 40, and let's look at it. It's a well-known passage. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. And notice this, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all the people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so, the center of the highway, of course, is Israel, and specifically Jerusalem, which is where God's presence is to be centered. And so, we see also from Isaiah that he speaks a little bit earlier that, is, that um, Jerusalem will become the mountain of the Lord's temple, that all of the nations will stream to it, and the result will be peace and justice over the whole earth, a restored garden of Eden on the entire earth. Now it's to this nation, it's to these people, and it's to this area that Yeshua comes. It says in Isaiah chapter 49 that he, that, um, that he will bring Israel back to himself, that uh, he will make the nation of Israel a light to the nations and that he, that he will bring about a restored Garden of Eden on the whole earth as the gospel of Yeshua goes out to the entire nations. It's, the, it's at the end of his ministry that he declares that because his people didn't recognize his coming, that the temple would be destroyed, his people would be taken as prisoners to all the nations, and Jerusalem would be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And then the Jewish people would return. So let's look at who's controlled Jerusalem since the time of Yeshua and the destruction of the temple. So you can see here, the temple was destroyed in 70 and Rome held on to it for a couple hundred years. Then it went from there to the Byzantine Empire, then Persia, then the Islamic Empire, then the Crusaders, then back and forth between the Crusaders and the Arabs, then the Egyptian Mamelukes, then the Ottoman Empire for several hundred years, then the British, then the United Nations, and then Israel, right, 1948. And then in 1967, of course, they retook Jerusalem in fulfillment of these prophecies, as the Lord would say. Now, Yeshua had said that the Jewish people would be scattered as prisoners to all the nations until this time. And so it's interesting that 
At the, by the end of the 19th century, Jews were scattered to the four corners of the earth. They were as far away as both North and, uh, North and South America, South Africa, Russia, China, Australia, New Zealand, and beyond. In other words, as far from Jerusalem as you could get, that's where the Jewish people had gone to. But then, beginning in the 19th centuries, the Jewish people began to return to the land. Here's the next slide is a picture of one of the, the uh, early settlements. This, this uh, particular slide is from 1914. And you can see the dark dots are the larger Jewish settlements and the uh, lighter ones, the, the round ones, the ones that are clear are smaller settlements. There's a particularly important one right up in this northern central area right up there. It's called Merchavia. Very important. You'll see about it later in a few minutes. Um, but these, this is the early settlements. Just to give you an idea of what was happening, in 1840, there was... 10,000 Jews in the land of then Palestine, Israel. 1881, the beginning of the Aliyah movement, which was the return of the Jews to the land, there were 25,000. By the time of this slide, 1914, there were about 85,000 Jews in the land. Following World War I, the Ottoman Empire was dissolved, which had controlled this entire region for hundreds of years. And as part of the partition plan, they partitioned what was then Palestine into two sections. And let's take a look at it, the next slide, as we well know. The, sec the section here, known as Jordan, was to be given over to the Arabs. And the section here, known as Jewish Palestine, was to be given to the Jewish people. That was the plan as designed after World War I <clears throat> and as codified in the Treaty of Versailles that concluded World War I. It was at that time that Jewish people began to come more and more into the land of Israel. <clears throat> but then, of course, following World War II, during this whole period, the British now controlled it. And following World War II, the land of Israel was given over to the United Nations, and they devised a partition plan between the Jews and the Arabs. So remember this slide. Now the next slide is, um, the next slide, the, Jew, the orange area is now given to the Jews, and the red and the yellow area is given to the Arabs. So you can see how much smaller it has now shrunk according to the UN partition plan. The Jews reluctantly accepted this plan. <clears throat> the Arabs did not. And the, the uh, Arabs living in the land began to attack Jewish settlements. And then when Israel declared her independence in 1948, then... Um, which happens, happens to be today, May 14th, um, not according to the Jewish calendar, but the Gregorian calendar. The, um, all five Arab armies attacked, and let's look at our next slide here, as you can see, is that armies attack from all over. And what's interesting, if you look at these various armies that are attacking from the north, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Jordan, and Egypt, guess where they're from? They're all the nations of the Fertile Crescent. In other words, that which God is going to bring about his purposes, all of these nations are attacking Israel in part because it was God's end time plan to bring the Jewish people back and to restore the, all the earth to his purposes. Of course, the Jewish, the Israel won the war and uh, following the war, Jews began to return from all the nations in large numbers, fulfilling numerous prophecies in the Bible. In fact, every prophet in the Bible talks about the return of the Jewish people uh, from, the, from all the four corners of the earth to the land of Israel. It's the greatest testimony to God's existence in, in the world today is the prophecies about the return of the Jewish people to the land and their return. And then you have this very well-known passage in Amos 9 that describes this. It says, in that day, 
I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Egypt and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring back my people Israel from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit, and I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land that I've given them, says the Lord your God. Of course, this was a scripture that I read several years ago over an Israeli army base. This was before we moved, and I was the first Messianic leader to actually speak to the Israeli military in, in any kind of setting. But also what's significant is he talks about the wine being dripped from the new wine will be come from the vineyards and so on. Beginning about 15 years ago, Israel began winning awards for the new best new international wines. And then most very personally, of course, our son-in-law Judah moved to California to study winemaking at UC Davis from Cal- Israel, moved back in July, now works in the Golan Winery in Israel as a winemaker. And so you can see he, he's directly fulfilling these prophecies. It's amazing what God is doing in, in these days. It's really incredible. So then, as many of you know, four and a half years ago, we made the venture to the land of Israel to immigrate there. And we moved to Kibbutz Merchavia, which you saw on their little slide. Let's look at the next slide here. And uh, this is Kibbutz Merchavia right here. Um, this right here is the Kibbutz. Right back here is a little section known as the Harhava, which is the extension of the kibbutz. The kibbutzim are no longer able to kind of keep up with uh, capitalism. And so uh, they have sold off portions of their property for private development. And they allowed for private homes to be built here. We live right there in that little space. That's us right in there. You can probably see us waving. No, this is before we moved. And um, But anyway, so this is where we moved to. This is a historic kibbutz. This is where Golda Meir was from, very significantly. And then the next picture is uh, Stacy and me. I think we may have seen, seen this. This is what, the day that we got our uh, Israeli citizenship. This was in December 2010, two years after we were arrested at the airport, for those of you who remember, and put in jail. And uh, people told us that we would never be able to immigrate because they accused us of being missionaries and all this kind of stuff. And uh, people in Israel said it will never happen. And there we are two years later in front of our partially built home with our uh, Israel identity cards and uh, to show that... God will have his way no matter what man wants. And um, so then in our next, next slide, here's the house, a little better shape. Um, at least, you know, the flowers and everything else in their house to the left. And uh, it's, it's a beautiful, you know, it's a really nice place. But it's also, we also live in a very strategic area. It's known as, the, it's the Jezreel Valley. And if you remember from the Fertile Crescent, we talked about the va- there's a valley that is the access point into the land of Israel and ultimately down to Egypt. In other words, the, the nations from the north always come, would always attack, bring their armies through this particular area known as the Jezreel Valley. And let's look at our next picture. This is, also, this is the Jezreel Valley here. This is... Uh, Megiddo or Har Megiddo, and uh, this is known in and it's turned into Greek as Armageddon. In other words, the Valley of Armageddon or Jezreel is the same. This is the Jezreel Valley. This is where we live right here. So we're on the other edge of the valley from Megiddo, and the invading armies traditionally would come in this direction and then head head south into the land of Israel. So we live in the one area of Israel where the final battle will occur, 
And so we're actually, we're happy to rent out rooms for the final battle if anybody would like to visit. But the, the irony is, is this, is that God's highway, which is in the center, the strategic center right here, is right here in Israel, is going to be the ultimate clash between good and evil. It's in this one particular area. And we can look at what it says in Prophet Zechariah about these last days, next passage, is I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. And on that day when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. All who try to move it will injure themselves. And so this is what's supposed to happen. We're witnessing the beginning of these events in the land of Israel and in the region today. Israel's borders are teeming with unrest unlike anything that world history has really seen. Even though Egypt is generally at peace on the southern border of Israel, the Sinai, which Egypt controls, is no man's land, and ISIS is basically taken over in the Sinai Peninsula, and Israel is very worried about an attack on its southern borders, and especially in the city of Eilat, which is the southernmost city of, of Israel today. Then, of course, in the nor- in the, on the west side, you have Hamas. In the north, you have Hezbollah. On the northwest or northeast, you have Syria and all the craziness that's going on around there. And then, of course, you have the West Bank, which is this kind of no man's land, unfortunately, right now. But, um, of course, a lot of the radical uh, Arab groups are trying to get in that, into that area as well. And so the big question is, with all this craziness going on, is why move there, right? I mean, things were pretty good here in the United States, at least for us. We had a wonderful congregation. It was very hard to leave. For those of you that are here, remember that. Very difficult to leave. And so why move here? But we want to look at our next passage here from Romans 11. It says, as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. It's talking about the Jewish people. But as far as the election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. In other words, he called the Jewish people to bless all the nations on the earth, and he will fulfill that call, but he's looking for people who will enable Israel to fulfill her mission, who will help Israel to become all that she's called to be. And we can see this in Isaiah, I mean Isaiah, Romans 11, well-known passage. I asked then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And so God is looking for those who would call upon him from within his own people that will enable them to fulfill their mission in God. And so, you know, it's interesting here in Richmond, you know, I was here for 21, 22 years, led a wonderful congregation. But honestly, there's only about 15,000 Jewish people in Richmond. In Israel, there's 6.4 million Jews. It's the largest Jewish community in the world. Within 20 years, it'll, it'll have the majority of Jews in the world will live in Israel proper. It'll be the first time since the Babylonian exile in 586 BC. It gives you an idea of what God is doing in these days. And so, of course, we want to go where our people are so that that we can enable them to fulfill their mission in God and to fulfill and to bring about a restored Garden of Eden over all the earth. We're to represent Yeshua in the midst of the house of Israel. Now, for those of you that know, when we went, 
Um, of course, I'd been a congregational leader here for many years, but, but we didn't, we didn't Stacy nor I felt led to go there to try to lead a congregation. First of all, you got the whole Hebrew thing, which of course is like a big joke as far as I'm concerned. But, um, but in addition, there's a lot of congregations. There's about 15,000 uh, Messianic Jews in the land of Israel. There's about 150 congregations. And so, you know, it's not like there's any shortage, especially for someone like me who can't speak Hebrew, wouldn't be very helpful. So we, what we really felt like was to be able to use my background in law and politics to enable, to, us, to, be, to integrate into the Israeli, Israeli life, into Israeli community, to be part of the normalization of the Messianic movement. The problem is the Messianic movement is a very marginalized community. They're not really in the professions and so forth. And so I felt this is where we could really help. So basically we went there, formed the first law, first law practice of all Messianic Jews in the land of Israel. There's a whole long story with that, but I'm running out of time, so I can't go into that. But we have, we've ended up after three years in this terrible offices. We just moved into this wonderful place a few months ago. Here's a picture of the, our office. Uh, this is where I'm instructing my, these are my partners. One, they're both Israelis. I practice U.S. law. They practice uh, Israeli law. And uh, we have a lot of clients. So this is our office. And then we have a wonderful place. It's like, a, it's almost like a Google setup. So you've got all these interactive things going on. So you can see an example of it. This is our office, the next picture. We have a... <laughs> We have a pool table and stuff. And sometimes if, if we're running late for a meeting, we find our clients playing pool. There's also a PlayStation. They're on the PlayStation thing, you know, with so- soccer and everything. I hate soccer, but that's beside the point. And, um, you know, where's American football when you need it? But anyway, and uh, so, so this is what we're doing. We're, you know, we're becoming more and more well-known in the country as a, as a law firm, not for just Messianic Jews, but for the, for the nation of Israel. It's really exciting. It's an amazing thing. But I also felt like the Lord was leading me to get involved in politics in Israel from my political background, to really enable the Messianic community to integrate, to have an effect upon the political scene, because again, they're a marginalized community. So I joined the Yeshatid party, which is one of the larger parties in Israel. Uh, it means Yeshatid means there is a future. It's led by Yair Lapid. And one of their platforms is religious plurality. Because if you know anything about Israel, religion is controlled by the ultra-Orthodox. It makes it very difficult if you're not ultra-Orthodox to have any kind of Jewish expression in the land of Israel. I mean, I mean not only are we persecuted, but the reform movement is persecuted, the conservative movement per- persecuted. And so this party is much more for religious plurality. And uh, so I've gotten, <clears throat> gotten quite involved. We're setting up meetings with messi- small groups of Messianic Jews and party leaders, members of the Knesset already. They know I'm a Messianic Jew. They're okay with it. Um, and so it's pretty exciting. And they just did a poll recently, um, just, uh, just before, just when I got here a couple of days ago. They're, number, they're ranked number two, uh, the number two party right after Likud. And we're hoping that he, our leader, will become the prime minister in the next election. He's got a real shot at it. And so uh, this would give us some real access uh, on the political scene. So it's pretty exciting. For Stacy, she's teaching music and teaching English, as she's also integrating in as well. Uh, but finally, we also lead a small group known as Adonai Shama in Israel, and uh, which is much more of a Jewish expression, kind of like what you do here, because in Israel, most of the Messianic congregations are basically Hebrew-speaking churches. But the, we're, what we're really doing is trying to have a more Jewish expression, and so we have that as well. Our goal is this.
is to strengthen and to help the remnant who believe to be a light to those who don't know him. That's what, it, that's what our calling really is. There's a huge tug of war in Israel over her identity. What kind of a nation is she to be? And there really is a tug of war. According to the scriptures, she is to bless all the other peoples of the earth. But sadly, the strongest religious identity, which I've already mentioned, is a radical one. It's controlled by the Haradim, which are the ultra-Orthodox. Unfortunately, they're full of hypocrisy, they're isolated, and they're prejudicial. There's got to be a better way, and we hope that we can contribute to being, this being a better way. God's ultimate plan, as, as uh, described in Isaiah 19, which I read from the beginning, is to create a highway running from Iraq through Israel and into Egypt, a place where God's presence would rule and reign. And here's the last scripture from Isaiah 35. It says this, and a highway will be there. It will be called the highway of holiness, the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No line will be there, nor any ravenous beasts. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return turn. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads and glad and gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee away. This is God's purpose for this area and for the whole world. We hope to be able to contribute to what God wants to do in the land of Israel and in the rest of the world. And here's the final picture. This is a picture of the, the dawn breaking over the Sea of Galilee. It's a picture I took. And uh, you can see it's almost like the presence of God coming down in the midst of the highway of God and his presence rule, ruling and reigning over the whole earth with Israel being the strategic center. And with that, that is it. That's what God is doing today. Thank you very much.